0: we up to Luke 4 now, and uh, we've got the record of the temptations of uh, Jesus in the wilderness in the first uh, ten verses or so. And when we had a look at Matthew 4, I gave my reasons for thinking that these, this was really an internal struggle within the Lord that is recorded in the way that it is, uh, because this was a, a kind of a dialogue form uh, which would have been quite Commonly uh, used by the rabbis, and which Jewish people in the first century would have been quite at home with, and they would not necessarily have read this as many people do today, as implying the the existence of a literal uh, Satan or devil figure. Now, just to bring out a few uh, encouraging practical points from from all this. You see the first temptation in verse 3, if you are the son of God, command this stone that it be made bread, and Jesus says it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And later on, um, when he's uh, tempted to throw himself off the temple, in verse 12, he answers it by saying, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, those two out of the three temptations, you could argue that if Jesus had given in to them, it would not have been sin. It would not have been a sin to feed himself in the wilderness by doing a little miracle to turn some uh, some rocks into bread. That would not have been a sin. But it would have been a lower level. It would have been the breaking of the fast which, uh, which he'd set himself. And the idea of not putting the Lord your God to the test, well, there are... At least three I can think of Old Testament precedents where you can give God, as it were, a test. One of them, of course, is Gideon, where he puts the law to the test with the thing about the, the fleece and the, uh, the, the ground around the fleece being wet and the, the fleece dry, and then he does it the other way round. Uh, that was not a sin. That was a man in weakness putting God to the test and ha- having his faith vindicated. Another one is in Malachi 3 verse 10 where God himself challenges the exiles that had returned that just just put me to the test and see if you pay your tithes as you should I will open the storehouses of heaven and bless you. And then Psalm 34 verse 8 taste and see that the Lord is good and the idea I think really is check it out, test it out for yourself and you will see the goodness of the Lord. Now all those uh, precedents that, I, that I've given you there those three precedents from the Old Testament do not mean that it would be a sin to, as it were, test out God but you could certainly say that in the Lord's context here in the wilderness it would have been a lower level and I think that very often this is our situation that we are in situations where it's not always a, a case of right and wrong of turning to the right or to the left sin or righteousness but it's a case of different levels and if we have a heart for God we will not be minimalists trying to get away with the minimum that we can but embedded in between those two temptations according to Luke's chronology of the uh, temptations you find another temptation which would without doubt definitely have been sin without without question and that temptation which would have been sin was a case I think of black or white, right or left and so it is very often I think with our situations that we find ourselves in if you keep on taking a lower level and in Jesus case turning stones into bread and uh, just for himself and and putting God to the test by jumping off a temple then this makes further obedience difficult, more difficult, and it also means that when real hardcore temptation arises, what it is to the right or to the left, we tend to fail, because we've taken the easier way before. Now, I'm not advocating any kind of uh, masochism whereby we uh, uh, sort of make ourselves struggle and uh, and suffer just, just purely for the sake of it, but I do think that If we really have a heart for God, we will time and again try not to serve him as minimalists on the minimum level, but on the highest possible level. The other practical example I think that we can take in in terms of our temptations is the way that the Lord Jesus, uh, as I understand it here, is talking to himself. Uh, he speaks to the devil as if it's a person, and I've suggested, as I say when we talked about Matthew 4, that this was really a personification that's being used of his own tendency towards sin, which we all have. So when he says here in verse 8, get behind me, Satan, he is talking really to himself, just as Paul really uses the same idea when he talks in Romans 7 about the two Pauls, the two people that are within him. And I think in the real nitty-gritty of dealing with temptation, this is, I think, the the pattern for us, to talk to yourself. You don't want to do that. Give up your place in the kingdom for that job, that career, that girl, that drug, whatever it is, uh, the the temptation is. uh, And to talk to ourselves like that. And this is all part of being in touch with ourselves, which I think is, uh, is so important in, in the spiritual life. Now, in verse 9, where he's up at the top of the temple in, in his mind's eye, it seems to me, and he thinks about throwing himself down, if you be the son of God. That could have been some sort of suicidal tendency. And I think that there's very few people who have not at some point in their lives got so low as to feel in some sense suicidal. But even in that, the Lord Jesus is there with us because he was tested and tempted as we are. And this is the whole point of uh, him being our representative, that he went through all this. And he went through even that. But the temptation was also, if you are the Son of God... Well, I've said uh, elsewhere that I think Mary, his mother, hit a kind of midlife crisis. She started off as a, a barefoot uh, pregnant teenager, absolutely full of God's word, convinced that this was uh, the Son of God, and she would prayed to be the mother of Messiah. But as the years went by, she started to, I think, look at Jesus and perceive him in the way that other people did, the son of Joseph. And you've got an example of that here in this chapter in verse 22 isn't, that, isn't this Joseph's son? he was known as Jesus Ben Joseph Jesus the son of Joseph the uh, carpenter or the uh, tech tom, the, uh, the the worker the manual worker of some sort there in in the village that's how he was identified <clears throat> that's how he was located as it were within the, the social matrix that people were in in, in those days and when Mary finds him in the temple when he's 12 years old and says didn't you know that your father and I were seeking you sorrowing using the word for sorrowing at a funeral uh, as if you know you were dead and he very gently even at 12 years old rebukes her by saying well didn't you know that I'd be in my father's house Uh, that's the temple why didn't you come obviously to to my father's house first of all and here you are You, you could have found me so I think that gentle rebuke, even at 12 years old, indicates that she had come to stop seeing him as the only begotten son of God. Just the the years going by, other children, probably no money, difficult life, etc. All those things got on top of her, and I don't think that she uh, lost her faith totally, but I think that that incident at twelve years old indicates a lot about how she had come to perceive the Lord Jesus and so he likewise must have had that niggling doubt am I really that special? and I think this surfaced in this temptation if you are the Son of God and you know again if we're honest we all have that same tendency to wonder at times whether really this is all for real whether really I am that different to the guy next to me, to my neighbours, the people I mix with, work with, maybe live with, who are not believers. Is it really so that I am going to rise from the grave and live forever because I am one of God's chosen people and they have chosen not to be? Is that really the case? And we have these doubts, especially because we we smell the same as they do plus minus we wear the same kind of clothes that they do eat the same kind of food and more or less the same sort of events happen in our lives as happen in theirs car crash cancer success good luck bad luck success at work failure at work problems with the kids success with the kids All these kind of things, these events that go on in our lives are not completely different to the events that go on in anybody else's life. But of course the difference is that there is a meaning ultimately attached to those events in our lives which perhaps there is not in the lives of unbelievers. Now of course, uh, specifically attaching the meaning to those events is, uh, is not so straightforward, but this kind of doubt, am I really different... This is not necessarily a sin, because the Lord never sinned, and yet he was counted, uh, well not just counted as, he was actually sinless. Now, he was of course so different to all the other people who have ever lived, in that he did not sin. And yet, when they perceive that he's standing up there and claiming to be Messiah, when he reads a messianic prophecy and says this now has been fulfilled in your ears, implying I am Messiah, they are stunned. Verse 22, they say, but is not this Joseph's son? Isn't this Jesus Ben-Joseph, the, the one we've seen grow up in the streets and play in the streets? And He's just an ordinary guy. What I think is so surpassing about the beauty of the, the Lord's character is that throughout his life he never sinned. And sin is not just avoiding committing bad things, uh, sin is also a sin of omission very often. He not only avoided doing bad things, he didn't go out and get drunk when he was 16 or 17, or he didn't uh, misbehave or whatever, play up. Um, He also did not omit to do any act of righteousness. And yet the wonder of it all was that he lived like that for 30 years without sin, either of commission or more to the point of omission, and yet nobody really figure that he was that different. When he actually starts to make the pointed kind of uh, statement, now at age 30, that, you know, guys, I'm actually Messiah, people are sort of really offended and upset, because they say, but you're not, you're just an ordinary guy. And so, whenever we try to be a bit righteous, typically in the workplace, or if our family are unbelievers, people don't like it. I notice that. There's an instinctive dislike of our attempt to, to be righteous and to not commit sin and not to omit righteousness. People don't like it. And yet, with Jesus, he was popular. It says at the end of Luke 2 that he grew in favor with God and man. That he was popular, he was known for being the son of Joseph, And yet people didn't perceive his perfection. And I I think in that is the artlessness, really, of the beauty of his personality and and character. So then they marveled because of the gracious words that he spoke. And actually that was what so impressed God. In Psalm 45, verse 2, God inspires the... uh, the words there about his son and about why he actually loved Jesus as he did and he, he says there in prophecy of, of Jesus that grace pours from his lips therefore God has blessed you forever and therefore you are fairer than the children of men this idea of grace pouring out of the lips of Jesus and therefore him being the most fair or beautiful of all the children of men in God's eyes and therefore the one whom God blessed forever. This was because of the gracious words that came from his mouth. So really his way of speaking was unusually gracious. And because of that, verse 7 Psalm 45 You loved righteousness and hated wickedness Therefore God, even your God Has anointed you with the oil of gladness Above your fellows So his gracious words Were not just that he was kind And uh, uh, just simply kind And positive to people There was a hatred of, uh, of wickedness It says there And a love of righteousness And that I, I think Defines a little bit more What, is, what it is to be gracious that it is in the end to love as God loves, and to be as he is. So then, he was there in in the synagogue, and he reads these words, and it's clear that he was literate. I think verse 17 makes that point. He opened the book, the scroll, and found the place where it was written, and he reads out. Now, literacy rates in Palestine are reckoned to be as low as 2 or 3%, and amongst the poor people, I mean virtually nobody could read. Now, how was it then that the Lord Jesus could read, that he was literate? There's all sorts of uh, fancy traditions about the, the expensive gifts that he was given by the wise men, that this, these were sold and used to buy the scrolls and uh, get him to have tutors to learn to read and all that, and I, you know, that all sounds to me rather fanciful. I think that Jesus, as the Son of God, was an intellectual without compare, that he had the genius well beyond anything like Einstein or Isaac Newton or whatever. He had probably figured things like gravity and that uh, the earth wasn't flat and all that sort of thing. He probably figured a whole load of things like that. I imagine him sitting there with the disciples drinking a mug of water and his mind just vaguely straying, working out surface tension on the uh, on the face of that water. Things like that. Not that I think he let his mind go um, too far down those tracks, although who knows, it's certainly not not not, not revealed. But I think the way that he could read, I assume that he had taught himself. And so I, I, I just mention that because it all indicates to me what a terribly lonely existence he had, living amongst very primitive, small-minded people who really did not have anything like the perspective on the world or life that, that even we have, and we ourselves are terribly limited. And yet, Jesus as the Son of God, not only spiritually had this very far wider horizon, uh, but just practically, because of his unusual intelligence as God's very own begotten Son, he would have been so alone in that sense. And really, all of us, I think, have at times lamented that about ourselves, that nobody quite understands my path in life or how I am and uh, it it can be a very lonely quite uh, disconcerting at times experience and yet straight away you are not alone because straight away you feel that presence of Jesus that he more than us went through that feeling of existential uh, loneliness because of the, the, the nature that he he had as being human and yet being the Son of God and having this understanding and perception which others clearly did not have so he says in verse 19 that he has come to preach the acceptable year of the Lord now that is an allusion to the year of Jubilee that's what uh, how the Jews understood the, the year of Jubilee the acceptable year of the Lord the, the year of God's acceptance and the the, The year of Jubilee was proclaimed on the Day of Atonement. And I think that the Lord is saying that, look, this has started right now. Now, of course, he hadn't died then. At the end of Luke, I think we have a number of allusions to the year of Jubilee, and we probably have a look at them when we look at Luke 24. But in its essence, Jesus had died for us, had given himself for us even before then. You remember, the start of John's Gospel: "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." It was as if he was, during his lifetime, that lamb, that sacrificial Passover lamb, that was taking away the sin of the world, that was the uh, the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement, all through his life. The cross was, as it were, the epitome of how he had lived throughout his life it was not some totally unconnected event that occurred at the end of his life that didn't have anything common with the life that he had lived before that in the same way as our carrying of the cross is not in occasional acts of commitment or spiritual valour it's a way of life it's a way of being and so he proclaimed Jubilee now in the practical terms, in literal terms, of course, the year of Jubilee was, was good news, because if you were in debt, that debt was written off, and all debts were uh, worked out in the context of how far off is the year of Jubilee. And so Jesus is saying, look, this is right now, that it's all over. Can you imagine going around suburbia, or urban, or rural, even the, uh, villages and uh, apartment blocks etc in the place where you live and knocking on people's doors and saying you know what all your debt is scribbled all your debt is is over now all those people who owe money for their property for their car for this that and the other you know what that's that's finished now you don't have any debts there'd be this huge sigh of relief wow just imagine if uh, in modern terms you, you got on email you get a letter, an official-looking letter one day in the post that says, well, because of such and such reasons, uh, your debt with the bank is, uh, is, is scribbled now. Or let's say it says, "Ah, oh, that bank's gone bust, and you know what, uh, it's been resolved like this, that it's all just been written off, and uh, you're not in debt anymore. And there you've been working away, trying to clear yourself and get yourself free of debt, and now you're free. In a far bigger sense, that sense of freedom which people would, it, would feel if they were told that that sense of freedom was proclaimed by Jesus there and then in a spiritual sense because you know, he says forgive us our debts as we forgive those that have debts to us he uses the, the metaphor of debts of owing money to describe sin and so when he says that forgive us our debts the implication is you say amen to that prayer and open your eyes and your debts are gone and it's a similar metaphor here that the year of Jubilee has come. And it's been announced with the blowing of trumpets on the, on the Day of Atonement. And, uh, in fact, this is how Luke's Gospel ends, that the good news of this day is to be proclaimed. And Paul picks it up in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, where he says that we are proclaiming, we are proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord that it is our job to go around telling people, hey, you know what? Day of Atonement just happened, and the year of Jubilee now has started. There is a Jubilee. There is this huge writing off of all debt. And insofar as we perceive that, as we break bread now, as we reflect on the fact that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, then we will believe that and we will feel that that really it's all over now that all that I struggle to try to clear this mountain of debt which you know for a lot of people humanly speaking drives them to suicide and all sorts of things but that is now gone it's all resolved and sorted out that is the good news that is the good news which we proclaim but we proclaim it because we feel it and you'll notice that he says in uh, verse 19 there to preach the acceptable year of the Lord and then in verse 43 he says I've got to go and preach the kingdom of God to others the essence of God's kingdom is an eternal year of jubilee the problem is with years of jubilee they only last for a year and then the whole sad business of getting into debt starts again but this year of jubilee is what the kingdom of God will be all about